Okay, let's pray one more time so that we can begin. Father, Lord, we come before you now and thank you again for uh, the promises that we sang about. Lord, we thank you that though we're prone to wander, Lord, you remain faithful nevertheless. You are a faithful God. You you are a covenant-keeping God, and your faithfulness endures to all generations, Lord. And we just pray that uh, through Hebrews, we would come now, Lord, to to see more of the promise, more of the surety of the hope that we have because of Christ. Help us now. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and a heart to pursue the things that you're saying in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been going through the book of Hebrews now for some time, and uh, we are going to be looking at these la- this last section in Hebrews 6. And we're going to break it up into two parts, so I'm just warning you that there is no possible way that I could go through verses 16 to the end in one sermon. I tried, and God stopped me right in the middle of my study and said, "Uh, no no way, buddy. There's just too much here. There's too much richness here. There's too much theology. There's too much truth for us to grasp. And I want to remind you that ever since chapter 5, verse 10, the author has been on a major digression uh, brought about by the spiritual immaturity of the people. Let me read that again for you in chapter 5, verse 10. It says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, that dull of hearing was serious enough for the pastor of Hebrews to have to go on an extended uh, a journey to talk about the danger of spiritual laziness and the pitfall of unbelief and the certainty of apostasy for those that will shrink back from the promises of God in disbelief. And so for this author, this digression is absolutely necessary, and this rebuke was necessary to remind them about the dangers of apostasy. Now, chapter 7 really is sort of resumptive. In other words, it picks up, chapter 7 picks up where chapter 5, verse 10 left off. So let me read chapter 5, verse 10, because there it says that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So that is the essence of where he's going in chapter 7. Here, however, he is returning to the theme of God's faithfulness to His people. And He's setting before them the purpose of God and the promises of God. And so He's warned them about the dangers, the peril of not believing in the promises of God. And so here He is seeking to encourage them, really to, 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 to give them strong encouragement, as He's going to say, built on what? built on the example of Abraham, as we saw, built on the finality of God's oath when God makes a covenant, when He promises, and built on the fact that believers have a hope that is sure. And so that's where He's going. Now for today, I want to look at the promise of God's purpose in Christ. The promise of God's purpose in Christ. Now, let me just say quickly about the promises of God in relationship to Christ. We should not at all be surprised that the author is connecting the promises of God with Jesus Christ because, after all, 
That is what all of Scripture really is all about. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says there, as many as are the promises of God. Now, how many are the promises of God? Well, there the author Paul, in this case, 2 Corinthians, or uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians, he's not so much talking about personal promises. He's not talking about promises that you feel in your heart belong to you personally, that God has met temporally in your life. Let's say that God has promised you uh, a certain blessing in your family, in your marriage, in your career, something like that. No, he has the redemptive promises of God in view. And he says, in him they are yes. And it says, therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In other words, not only are the promises of God solidified in Jesus Christ, but we also, when we see what God has done in Christ, we add our amen to what God is doing. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, speaking in the same breath, uh, Paul says there, he says in, in Romans 15, 8, Romans 15.8, he says, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God, for what purpose? To confirm the promises that were given to the fathers. All the promises that God made to the patriarchs, to the fathers. All the old covenant promises that God had, had, had uttered and had put His name next to. All of these things were, were for the purpose of confirming those promises through Jesus Christ. Now, again, Acts chapter 13, verse 32, another glorious example of this. Acts 13, 32 says, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Isn't that amazing? That the promise that was made to the fathers corresponds to the good news now about what is being announced through Jesus Christ, namely in the gospel, in the gospels. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. And, or as it is also written in, in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ironically enough, that verse there out of Acts chapter 13, verse 33, is uh, psalm chapter 2, which is relevant to Hebrews and everything we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews, especially when you go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, because that is precisely the psalm that he quotes in relationship to the Son. And that is exactly what the author still has in mind when he's talking about the promises of God. All of God's redemptive promises are tied to His redemptive purpose and His purposes that were made good by Jesus the purposes that cannot be understood, the promises that cannot be experienced without Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, especially the redemptive, the salvific promises of God that in Christ every spiritual blessing is given to us in Him, that is in union with Christ. I talked about in Sunday school the importance of the doctrine of union with Christ, and there you see it right there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Now the author is returning to the priesthood of Jesus, and it is imperative that we understand that. So the author shows us the indisputable, unchangeable, and encouraging nature of the promise. So we're going to look at two things in the next two weeks, the unbreakable promise of God and the invincible hope of the believer. That's really where we're going. 
So he begins by saying that God's promise is indisputable. All of this makes for our assurance. This is the bedrock of the Christian's hope that God and what he promises and what he says and what he records in his word and what he promises to do salvifically for us is sure. It is beyond dispute. And so he gives us a human analogy. Look at verse 16 again, Hebrews 6.16. He says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation. Uh, As confirmation is an end of every dispute. So in other words, when an oath was attached in the Levitical code under the old covenant, when a person was bound to swear by the Lord, that's what David does in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 15. He takes this, uh, he takes this Egyptian uh, uh, wanderer, and, he, and, and, he, and, and uh, the Egyptian tells David, he, says, Dave, he tells to David, swear by your God. He must have known something about the, the, the Levitical law and its, uh, its standards for taking oaths. Because the Jews were told that when they swore, they were to swear by no other God. They were to swear by the God of Israel alone. And what that meant was two things. Not only that they, that they had to fulfill the promise, whatever was promised and whatever oath was used to confirm that promise, but also they would be under a penalty of God if they did not keep that oath. So Hebrews also understands the Old Testament background of bearing God's curse any time an oath is violated. So see, for a first century Jew, you understand this, and you have a record of this, and you have an example of this. Uh, For example, look at Zechariah chapter 5, or as you take five minutes to find it, I'll read it for you. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 3. That's an easy one. Anytime you're in the minor prophets, you know it's going to take people to find those minor prophets. But in Zechariah chapter 5, verse uh, 3 and 4, we have that very thing, a curse belonging to those who don't fulfill their oaths. It says, then he said, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears, there's the oath, will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, that is the curse, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it, that is the curse, will spend the night with that house and consume it and its timber and its stones. In other words, God would visit a person, their household, their life. In other words, the orientation of their life, they're coming and they're going with curses, for swearing by the holy name of the God of Israel and then failing to make good on those promises. In verse 13, we find that God did swear, remember? Look at verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself. And so there, God made a covenant with Abraham and he brought an oath on top of that covenant. He swore to to him, and he says, Surely I will bless you, and I surely will multiply you. And so the first century reader is tempted to think, Well, what does that promise have to do with me now? This idea of blessing Abraham and multiplying Abraham. Well, we looked at that and we saw how that the language of blessing Abraham, multiplying Abraham, is really ultimately redemptively fulfilled through Jesus Christ. 
We are the heirs, as he's going to go on to say, of the promise, the heirs of salvation. Everything that God promised to Abraham is made good in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we become fellow heirs with him. We inherit whatever Christ inherits, and therefore it could be said, even of Abraham, in Romans chapter 4, it could be said that he is the heir, not just of the land of Canaan, but he is the heir of the whole world. And what is said about believers? The meek shall inherit the earth, right? All things, the Apostle Paul says, belong to you, whether life or whether death or all things belong to you because we are in Christ. That's just, that's just baffling to think about, isn't it? That we will inherit whatever Jesus inherits. I mean, that's just baffling to think about. Dare I say, we need faith even to begin to believe that. <laughs> because if we really, really, fully, absolutely believe that, our lives would change. Period. End of story. We would risk more for the gospel. We would give ourselves more to the gospel. We would, we would put ourselves in positions to serve the gospel with greater fervency and greater zeal. We would be sold out for the gospel. So by giving us a human analogy to look at Hebrews understands that this language was covenantally bound. In other words, this is all covenant language, and so therefore what the author is trying to get us to understand is that God's covenant faithfulness is on the line, His covenant faithfulness towards us, His oath that He made in Christ, the promises that He has made in Christ, about Christ, puts His promise beyond dispute. Now that's heavy-duty arsenal for spiritual warfare when you're going through it, when you're riddled with doubt, when you're riddled with fear, when you're riddled with anxiety, when you're riddled with depression, when you can't even get out of bed, when you don't want to face another day, when you think you're a rotten parent and you're not doing a good job, when you know that you haven't been a good spouse and you're condemned by what you've done. The fact that God's promises are beyond dispute should bring us back to planet Earth should ground us again in the gospel so that we get up and we, and we get moving again in Christ. I don't know how else you're going to live this Christian life if you don't learn to harness the promises of God in this way. So not only are the promises of God beyond dispute, but God's promise is also unchangeable. In other words, it's inalterable. Look at verse 17. In the same way, and so the argument is from the lesser to the greater, right? Just like men make these kinds of promises, these kinds of oaths, to a greater degree, it says, in the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath. You see why I couldn't do just one sermon? It's not possible. With a verse like that, what am I supposed to do? Just rush over it? I can't rush over it. There's so much untangling to do here. There's so much truth. There's so much meat. And you remember what the author has already said about meat, right? You need the meat. You don't just need the milk. That's his whole point. And so this is a verse that causes us to stop and think about what has just been said here. In the same, in the same way, God desires to do what? The Greek word here is to demonstrate, to show, to put forth as a demonstration to the heirs of the promise. That is us. 
the unchangeableness of his purpose. And then he says, and it says here, he interposes it with an oath. The, the, the word interpose here, misiteo, uh, just literally means to guarantee. Misituo, that's the way you pronounce that Greek word. Amazing about that Greek word, it's only found right here in the entire New Testament, nowhere else. It is what's called a hapax legomena. Hapax, the Greek word that means once. Legomena, speaking of a word or speech, in other words, it's the only time this word is used anywhere in the New Testament, and it is used in a very precious place to speak about the fact that God's promises are guaranteed with an oath. Remarkable, remarkable. So, the designation that is given here, the heirs of the promise. I want to focus in on that, and in, by doing so, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me, if you would. Galatians chapter 3, because there Paul sort of gives additional commentary and explanation as to the heirs of the promise. He gives his own view of this, his own vocabulary, his own way of speaking about this, because this is proof that in Abraham all of the nations will be blessed in him, that is, in his seed, of course. Look at uh, Galatians chapter, six, verse, or chapter 3, verse 6. He says, even so, Abraham believed God. Just as we've been looking at in Sunday school, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, this is talking about justification. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. But, but literally, someone would say, the retort would be, literally, aren't the sons of Abraham over in the Middle East somewhere? In, in Jerusalem? In, in Israel? Isn't that where the sons of Abraham are literally at? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, the sons of Abraham now become a trans national, it becomes a global, it becomes a multi-ethnic description. In other words, all the nations of the earth. In other words, all the families of the earth. Look at what it goes on to say. Scripture, this is amazing, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. That's amazing. Saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. In you. So then, those who are the, of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Abraham is the prototypical Christian. He is the prototypical believer. He is the one who has faith unto salvation. The promise of Hebrews is equivalent, therefore, to the Pauline promise of being justified by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone and leave everything else alone. That's the way redemption works. Look at Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 22. It says, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Those who who believe. And then he goes on to say, if you look at verse 29, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according 
to the promise. Heirs according to promise means not only are we heirs of the promise, but we are heirs according to the promise. Meaning that the promise itself was originally meant to be fulfilled by Christ and received by those who are in Christ through faith. Paul and Hebrews speak with one voice as to the identity of the heirs of the promise, those who believe in the mediator Jesus Christ. This is how God is truly blessing and multiplying Abraham's seed. Let me read to you a couple of uh, passages out of Genesis. Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, when the covenant is initially given there in Genesis 12, it is later repeated and reaffirmed, reestablished at different parts and times in Abraham's life, and then it is reaffirmed with his descendants, Abraham, or, uh, Isaac and then Jacob. It is reiterated to them as well. But in Genesis 15, 5, this is what I mean. Blessing and multiplying Abraham. Oh, what does that look like? Well, Genesis told us what it would look like. God takes Abraham outside. He gives him a night vision in which Abraham is taken outside and is told, look toward the heavens and count the stars. And I think if you are able to count them, I think Abraham in the vision probably stopped and went, uh, what? Count the stars. Now remember, this is in a region of the world, no light, no light pollution. So have you ever seen the stars, say, in Yosemite or up in the mountains or anywhere like that, Montana? I'm thinking of places I've been, the Sequoia Forest. I remember being in Africa, in Uganda, about, I don't know, about six miles away from the, the, the Nile River, and I got really sick. <laughs> I got radical food poisoning, and I literally thought I was going to die. I mean, you almost didn't have a pastor, or at least not this pastor, today. And I spent, oh, I won't tell you how long in the outhouse, and I won't tell you what happened. Anyway, it was horrible, and I remember getting out of the outhouse, and literally I had lost 40 pounds. I came back, and I was, I was, I was weighing about a buck 60 after I got home from Africa. I mean, it was unbelievable. Great diet program, by the way, if you guys want to ever lose any weight, just follow me, buy a ticket, and fly to Africa with me. I'll I'll tell you what to eat, too. (laughs) I sat on a a stump or a a brick, really, um, a a cinder block, and I I, I sat on that thing, and I looked up to heaven, and I, I thought, this view is so remarkable. There's no light anywhere. The only light you have is the stars. And I tell you what, the sky just swallowed me up, along with all the other bugs and everything else swallowing me up. And I looked up at the sky and I thought, wow, look at how marvelous. This is what Abraham must have saw. I had that thought come into my mind. Wow, this is what it must have been for when God said, look up into the sky and try to count these stars. It is impossible. And science has told us it is impossible. You will sooner run out of numbers than run out of stars. It is impossible for you to count the stars. I mean, it really is. Take whatever mathematical equation and whatever you can, I guarantee you one person can't count the stars. But you see the euphemism. The euphemism is an innumerable number of people are coming, Abraham, out of you. How? By faith. And so 
the whole book of Hebrews is written so that it could, it could resonate in our hearts, so it could resound and echo forth in our soul until the day that we die, that it is by faith that the promise of God will be realized in you. And that's what he wants them to see. He doesn't want them to throw in the towel. He wants them to understand that we will reign with him, that we will inherit the earth, that we will triumph over all of our enemies. This too goes back to Genesis. Genesis 22, 17 says, not only I'm going to bless you, I'm going to greatly multiply your seeds as the stars of the heaven and the sands which are, which are on the seashore, but your seed will possess the gate of their enemies. Enemy language in the Old Covenant is spiritualized in the New Covenant in places like Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, which I will read for you, where Christ is said to have defeated our enemies. It says in verse 12, "...having been buried with Him in baptism..." in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, he ra uh, who raised Him up from the dead when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your heart, He made you alive together with Him, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross when He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through the cross or through Him here. That is Christ triumphing over all the principalities and powers. The rulers refer to demonic forces, our real enemies. Our real enemy is not ISIS. Our real enemy is that which fuels ISIS, the principalities and powers. That is the deeper issue. And in a place like Colossae, when, where you, you could have been brought up as a pagan in a Roman colony like Colossae, you would have believed in the power of the principalities. You would have believed in the power of the rulers. You would have believed in the power of these mystery religions that gave all this credence to false gods. And so for the Apostle Paul now to be saying that Jesus triumphed over all these things is saying all power, all authority, all demonic forces have been put under his feet and he has triumphed over them where? Military, a, a, a military venture? No, through the cross. The cross where we think Christ was at His lowest point was the place of victory. Victory, where our victory is won. The promise is all about inheriting eternal an eternal inheritance. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, because after he begins to trickle out these ideas, in Hebrews 9, 15, he really solidifies these things. He brings it all together, begins to develop further what he means by all these concepts. And then we get a verse like this, Hebrews 9, 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the, of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called. Isn't that an amazing reference? Those who have been 
called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, of eternal inheritance. So in other words, the called is the same thing as the heirs of the promise. It's the same thing as we, as it's going to go on to say, who have taken refuge. The called. Doesn't it sound very Pauline, right? Those whom he called, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also justified, and he justified, he also glorified. Yes, it sounds very Pauline because there's one author behind all of Scripture, namely God. So next, finally, God's promise is not only beyond dispute, not only is it unchangeable, but God's promise is encouraging. It is encouraging. So go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and look with me at verses 17 and 18. Even in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with the oath, with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge, who have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. I mean, like I said, I mean, that's a sermon right there. It's too much. I'm sorry if I'm gloating over this, but I do. I celebrate what Scripture has with great, great joy because this is treasure. This is treasure for you. If you have eyes to see, if you really, really understand the purpose of God, let me say this. If we have a man-centered perspective of our lives, then the things that are being said right here in the book of Hebrews will be very strange to us. But if our orientation in life is a God-centered, a theocentric, a Christocentric perspective of life, then these things will be precious. These things will be, be, be so precious, it'll be an estimable treasure for your soul. As he goes on to say in verse 19, we have an anchor for the soul. This goes down into the very deepest existential corners of our being. And it grounds us, it roots us, and it, it, it makes us stable in a shifting, fickle, uncertain world. It gives us stability and strength and strength. So remind yourself, brothers and sisters, of the promise. Because here we are told that it is meant to encourage us and to show us that. He reminds us that there are two unchangeable things that make it impossible for God to lie. What are those two unchangeable things? In the context, all sorts of different theories have been set forth. What are those two unchangeable things? Very simple. It is God's promise and it's God's oath. God cannot break his promise, and he certainly will not break his oath because he puts his own name on the oath. He swears, remember, verse 13, he swears by himself, which means God brings forth his own name to make certain to the heirs of the promise that they will receive what is promised. What is promised? But again, for us, if we don't have this God-centered perspective of life, if all we think about is what will happen in this life, in this world, in this temporal space to me right now, according to what I think God needs to do in order for me to be happy, well, then the promise will mean very little to you. But if you have an eternal perspective, 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. If you look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen, which are eternal in the heavens, then this will become extremely precious to you. That God's promises will not fail you in any way. What is God's oath that He made? This is why the author of Hebrews, I could just see him there. As a pastor, oh, I want my church to get this. They've got to get this. That it's not just a sermon. That it's not just a, a preaching point. This is our life if we understand what is being said here. Right? Psalm 110, verse 4. This is the oath that God made. Attaching it to the promise. The Lord has sworn. Oh, when God makes an oath like that, you know this is heavy. God's being is totally invested here. This is God putting himself under oath. This is God binding to his promises a pledge that cannot be broken. He says, the Lord sworn and I will not change my mind. In other words, this is in accordance with the eternal decrees of God. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What? We're back to the Melchizedekian priesthood? How does that change my life? Six o'clock in the morning when everyone around me has road rage. It changes your life because you understand you have a high priest that is so faithful He's interceding for you. He's there. He's standing as an eternal intercessor, praying for you, praying for your trials, holding you up, giving you self-control so that you don't join in on the road rage or the filthy speech at work or the filthy coarse jesting or the joking around at school or whatever. You have a high priest who is over you, who has cleansed you of, 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 of your conscience, of dead works, so that now you can serve the living God. Not dead religion. Not dead Christianity. Not just American, the man upstairs type of spirituality that you can find anywhere in this world. No, this is true, new covenant, blood-bought Christianity we're talking about here. And he has sealed it with an oath. God wants to show us this so that we would have... No, 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 no. I almost messed it up. Look, at, look, 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 look at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. And then it says, so that we who have taken refuge. Isn't that a glorious description of salvation? We who, as Colossians says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, we who, who, who are hidden in God with Christ, hidden, hidden away in God with Christ, you have a secret soul life. You do lead a double life. You know that? There's the life that everybody else sees, and then there's the secret place where no one sees except God. And in the secret place of our heart, in the secret place of our soul, this scripture is saying that if you have by faith, I think is the way we should interpret it, by faith taken refuge in Christ, then you are safe. What is a refuge? Uh, this goes back to what? 
This goes back to the cities of refuge language of the Old Testament where people who had committed a really, um, a really unfortunate crime, like manslaughter, they would flee to the city of refuge so that they wouldn't have to face the avenger of death. In other words, in other words they wouldn't have to be put to death for their crime. They could, they'd have a way out because they didn't really intentionally do it. They'd have a, a way to escape. In a little way, that is a prefigure of what Jesus did so that all of our sins, commission, omission, all of our sins can be forgiven and we can be safe and hidden in the cleft of the rock, which is Christ. We could be hidden in the city of Reshi. We could run for safety when there's no safety anywhere else in the world. No safety with the doctors. No safety with the civil magistrates. No safety with the authorities. No safety with the UN and the nations. Missionaries are hidden in God with Christ. And that is a promise that can never be taken away. Are you encouraged yet? Strong encouragement. This is strong encouragement. This is encouragement that will hold you together until the day that you receive what is promised to you. This will hold you together to the very end. Do you think about that day? My wife thinks about it all the time. She's kind of crazy. I mean, abnormally obsessed with thinking upon death and that day. So by osmosis, I have to think about it all the time. But I do think about it, and I think, oh, the day where my foot's in the river, all I can see is just an itty-bitty little shore, Canaan. It's a big river in front of me. It's dark. It's mysterious. I don't know what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like, what it's going to look like. But there is something that has gone right in front of me, before me, like an anchor that somebody picked up and threw over shore and threw it in and anchored it down and says, you're safe to cross over. That is what this says. What is the hope that is set before us? This is the hope that Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. It's beautiful. We're connected to him. He's our trailblazer. He's our captain. He's our leader. He goes in front of us through the, 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 the waters, through the, 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 the shadow of death. And he turns around and he says, keep coming. I'm your shepherd, shall not fear. Keep coming. You're going to make it to Canaan's shore. Father, God, I truly, the bottom of my heart, oh God, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this church right now would have a saving interest in Jesus Christ, would have a saving interest faith in Him, would be trusting in Him, would have refuge in Him, would be protected by Him, would be hidden with Him in God, and thus shielded from all of the forces of sin and Satan and hell. Thank you for our Savior, who as Scripture says, because He, live, because he lives, we will live what is our salvation built on? An indestructible life. 
Jesus. And so God, help us to take great encouragement, Lord, not just for the moment of death, for every moment until death, for every moment of life, to know that whenever we get bad news, whenever we get a bad phone call, whenever we get a bad prognosis, whenever we get a bad situation or a bad circumstance or a dark providence, we are able to hold it together, not because we're strong, but because you're strong. And in this lies all of our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.